When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, welcome. I'm Christina Yerling Biro, and this is Pop Culture Confidential. No, that's not our regular theme music. That's John Williams' incredible score for E.T., the iconic Steven Spielberg film celebrating 40 years this year. A movie with its themes of finding home that meant so much to me and so many others around the world. I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to talk to the incredible Dee Wallace, who played the kid's mom, Mary, in E.T., one of the first and most heartfelt portrayals of a single mom in cinema. Ms. Wallace tells stories from the set that I had no idea about, on working with Spielberg, how one of her reactions to something that Elliot did, played by Henry Thomas, made Spielberg change the set entirely and about working with E.T. himself. And there's more. Miss Wallace's career is truly iconic, particularly in the horror genre. She's been called the original Scream Queen, and we can see her and her film's influences resonate in things like Stranger Things and tons of horror today. I mean, just to name a few, She starred in Joe Dante's 1991 werewolf movie The Howling, where she played a news anchor stalked by a serial killer. Her role as the mother protecting her son from the rabid St. Bernard and Stephen King's Cujo is legendary. And Peter Jackson's The Frighteners, Critters, and so much more. Dee Wallace is also an author and a healer. Her work through the years has been based on the principles of accepting responsibility and loving ourselves early in life to create the life we desire. Her latest book is called Born. Ms. Wallace, thank you so much for joining me and congratulations to ET 40 years. Thank you, Christina. I just wanted to be a, a little personal here in the beginning. I know that a million people tell you this, but it, I realized that it had a double impact on me. Once when I was 10, when I saw it, I was a child of divorce who moved around a lot, different countries yep. and things. And then years later, when I became a single mom, the impact shifted and, and just Mary has just been, was with me those years as well. And is for me, one of the most important portrayals of a single mom ever on screen. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. I I cannot tell you how many poignant stories I hear from mothers and single mothers and, and parents of how this film impacted their lives. You know, some films, some stories, you, you feel their age, they disappear. Your films, your career doesn't. They're in the zeitgeist. Um, neither do the, the two Stevens you've worked with, Stephen King and Steven Spielberg, <laughs> are so powerful. Um, why do you think this is, why do your stories just keep going on generation to generation? Well, that's a good question. I've never, I get that question often about E.T., but it's, it is very true. 
we'll get to ET, but it's not just that. There's something about your career yeah. that we see in Stranger Things. We see with, you know what I mean? I think, first of all, what a lot of people don't understand or know is that horror films are healing. <laughs> if you Google the positive effects of watching horror films, uh, it's pretty staggering the amount of information they have, which is why, of course, every Disney film has an evil character in it, because it allows us in a safe place to work out our fears, handle our fears, and feel victorious over them, right? But if there's if I had to answer that question as far as my performances, I would have to say it's because I, my first concern is always to bring my heart into every performance, whether it's a romantic comedy or a family film, a horror film, or, you know, ET, you, you have to drive your character from the heart. Even that weird uh, Patricia in The Frighteners is driven by her love and passion for Johnny and feeling alive. She couldn't feel alive, really alive, unless she participated in those killings. So in a very strange way. I always look for the heart of the character and what part of their heart is driving them. Yeah, I remember a quote you said, I have it here, the essence of my work of me is the softer side of a strong woman. And that goes into a number of different roles, which is what you're saying here, really. Yeah, yeah. Boy, that was a good quote. Yes, you have some good ones. <laughs> But just in terms of, you know, fun, what makes a great scream queen? Oh, you know, uh, for me, it's being truthful. It's really easy in a horror film to act and to heighten everything, right? And that is part of the genre. But, you know, anybody can scream. But for the audience to understand where the scream comes from, on a soul level is a whole different thing. Then they can live that journey with you. People lived the journey of that mother in Cujo, doing everything and being willing to do everything to save that child. Very much similar theme, uh, theme in E.T. Mm -hmm. uh, the Howling, all about that sportcaster's heart and drive to uncover the story between the light and the dark. And that's what the howling is all about. Right. It is the battle between the light and the dark. And at the end, you know, that little Bambi werewolf wasn't even, that was an added scene after we got all the cards back. And Joe Dante called me and said, D, everybody wants to see you turn into a werewolf. And I said, okay, but you have to find a way to make her a little bit more vulnerable because her heart has fought against this so hard. And so 
he and Rob came up with this little Bambi werewolf here. But sometimes it can be too much. You've actually said that Cujo, I mean, it was such a difficult shoot that it nearly killed you. Yep, it did. They what happened? Me. Well, did you see the movie? Woman? I did, I did. Okay, so uh, the whole movie is fight or flight. And your body and your brain doesn't know that you're acting. Your body and your brain goes through the same chemical adrenaline rushes and releases that it does if you are literally in fight or flight for your life for eight weeks. So, you know, every scene that you see on screen, we do five to 15 times for performance, for different angles, for the camera, you know. So you multiply all that and it's like, it's like you're in fight or flight overload, you know, for a year. Yeah. Um, so it was literally the hardest thing I've ever done. And it's my favorite film of mine. But the five dogs were good doggies. <laughs> yeah, actually, there were more than five. Oh, really? But yes, beautifully trained, all of them never felt afraid of the dogs ever. Uh, they were trained to go after toys. So we literally had to tie their tails down with fish wire because oh, they were wagging them all the time. And, you know, I have to take a moment to give homage to Danny Pintaro. That little kid was beyond his years. It was unbelievable working with him. Oh, you've worked with some great kids. I mean, well, let's get into, into that now. So it's E.T.'s 40th. How, how did Spielberg find you? You know, I, I believe he originally found me uh, in The Howling. And he called me into audition for used cars, which I say now, fortunately, I did not get <laughs> uh, because he, Stephen works very far in the future. You know, he always knows what's coming up and working on it. And he saw that childlike quality in me that he wanted in Mary. And so fortunately for me, he saved me for E.T. And when E.T. came along, they just called and offered it to me. And she's such a unique character. As far as I know, had not been this type of interesting single mom on screen in such a big movie. What did you think of Mary when you first read her? I just knew her. I just knew her the minute I read her. I was, I was raised for all practical purposes. Uh, my mother was not single and my father was very not present. He was an alcoholic uh, after I was probably seven or eight years old. And I watched my incredibly strong mother and my incredibly strong grandmother raise these three very successful kids. So I didn't, or I wasn't conscious of ever basing Mary on my mom, but I just knew her. Mary is the closest character to me that I've ever played. Mm -hmm. I knew what drove her, you know, 
I knew where her heart was at. I, I saw firsthand what it was like to have to go to work and have to take a bus at 7 a.m. and not be able to pick your kids up from school. So grandma was there and come home at seven o'clock and make dinner and try and stay awake long enough to have a conversation with your kids. And then everybody went to bed, you know, so I knew that world. Such a powerful scene when Elliot is upset that they don't believe him that he's seen E.T. He blurts out that dad's in Mexico with the new girlfriend. And you can see in your face, in, in Mary's face, the pain. That's exactly what happened. I was not supposed to get up and leave. And, uh, and um, I'm not sure I knew that was coming. Stephen would whisper stuff in their ear and, you know... That's how he got real reactions from them and me. And um, I remember when I heard that line, take my heart took such a hit and I felt the tears coming up and I thought, oh, I can't let my kids cry. Like, you know, I was so merry that I was thinking like Mary. So I got up and left and Stephen came over and it said, Dee, why, why did you get up and leave? And I told him what happened. And he called everybody to the set. He said, you got a half an hour. I need you to build me a, a wall with a kitchen sink with running water so he could take me over to the sink and then bring me back into that big close-up where I say he hates Mexico. And all that happened, A, because Stephen gave us the freedom to follow our instincts. B, when I did, he was able to hear the truth of it. And so it got expanded on like any good, brilliant director does. Wow, that's amazing. So that whole scene was reconstructed. The whole room was yeah. reconstructed. Yeah. All we're trying to say is maybe you just probably imagined it. I couldn't have imagined it. Maybe it was a pervert or deformed kid or something. A deformed kid. Maybe uh, an elf or a leprechaun. There was nothing like that, penis breath! Elliot! <laughs> Sit down. <clears throat> Dad would believe me. Maybe you ought to call your father and tell him about it. I can't. He's in Mexico with Sally. Where's Mexico? Excuse me. I'm gonna kill you. If you ever see it again, whatever it is, don't touch it. Just call me and we'll have somebody come and take it away. Like the dog catcher? But they'll give it a lobotomy or do experiments on it or something. It's your turn to do the dishes, fellas. I set and cleared. I set and cleared. I did breakfast. I did breakfast. What's the matter, Mom? It's Mexico. Yeah, we've read through the years after E.T., we, of course, understood that so many of Stephen's movies um, 
emanated from his own childhood and, and, and experiences with divorce. He has this new movie, Fableman's, coming out. Did you, did he talk to you about his own experiences and about this? No, no, we never did. He never, uh, we never talked much about the part, tell you the truth. And, and we didn't talk uh, much about the interaction with the kids either. I think he just, well, yeah, and a good director knows that sometimes the less you talk about something, uh, the more in the moment everybody is, especially kids, especially kids. So you don't want to get them too primed. You don't want to get them to rehearse. So Stephen would just throw in directions at the last minute or whisper Drew, say this line. Or while we're shooting, he'd go, okay, Drew, take a bite of your hamburger and now look at Robert and say blah, blah, blah. So that everything was new and fresh, you know? And she's such a natural, and with you as well. I mean, that chemistry is... All the kids, all the kids were just like, I just felt like I was walking into a set where I worked with a lot of other adults. You know, and I got to say the same thing went for E.T. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You never felt like you were working with a puppet. We were never allowed to see people being put into E.T. Stephen went out of his way to keep E.T. alive for Drew when we weren't shooting uh, because we would find her over there talking to E.T. So he had people on E.T. all the time so that E.T. could respond in some way to her when she was over there. You know, Drew was at the age where uh, reality and fantasy just go in and out of each other all the time. So I went to pick her up to do the scene uh, where E.T.'s dying. And I went to the adjoining soundstage and I said, okay, Drew, we're going to go do the scene where E.T.'s dying, but you know, he's not really dying, sweetheart. He's acting just like we act. She looked at me and she said, I know, Dee, do you think I'm stupid? (laughs) So I picked her up and we walked in. She took one look at E.T. and burst into tears. Dee's dying! Stephen's going, okay, roll it, roll it, roll it. It was pretty funny. One of my favorite scenes, which which really shows also Mary's sort of how stressed she is, but how much she wants to be, you know, do everything for her children, is when when E.T. is following her around in the kitchen, but she can't see him. Yeah. Well, yeah. And, you know, I have so many people say to me, oh, I so wish that you were my mom when I was little. And I said, I know, because I never knew what was going on in in my own house, right? (laughs) And I've got to tell you, the first time I ever walked on set and saw E.T., it was like Carlo Rimbaldi captured a soul in that little guy. It was the weirdest thing, Christina. It Mm. was weird and beautiful. When did you realize that this had become a world-changing movie that it was like in hearts forever. Oh, I think I'm still realizing that, you know, every public appearance, every convention I go to, every 
person I talk to has stories about how this movie has changed their life in a positive way. So it's not that people just keep paying to see the movie. They keep paying to be moved by the movie and to remember the magic of the message that we all know is true, but we forget and we don't live. If we would just keep our hearts open and live in love, we would always get back to the home of who we are, always. And we've heard it, you know, Peter Pan, think happy thoughts and you fly. Wizard of Oz, you had the power all along, Dorothy. But we hear it and we keep those movies alive because we get the truth and we forget to live it in our in our daily lives. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. In your book, you talk about the importance of saying what you mean and not beating around the bush about what you want, to sort of paraphrase. You seem to have just a nonstop career. Has this always been something you've done? Uh, no. No? <laughs> I, well, it comes you know, with, wisdom comes with age, no? Well, you know, interestingly enough, we're very wise as children. We all do it as children. We all say exactly what we want. And, uh, and then we're told not to. And then we're taught not to. And then we're taught that uh, we're not loved as much as we do. And so we learn to quiet that still knowing voice within ourselves that says yeah go tell them what you want for christmas tell them what you want at disneyland tell them what you know and the universe works very much the same way you have the more specifically you ask the more specifically it's delivered and so um i put it away uh, I channeled a lot when I was little. Of course, we didn't call it that. We didn't even know what channeling was in my Methodist family. And um, and then I really didn't play around with it again until I found Science of Mind, which is not Scientology. Science <laughs> of Mind is the teaching of your thoughts create your life. And that started opening up all the stuff that I remembered. And then I met my husband who was very involved in studying a premise, I guess, called conceptology and uh, opened up my channel even more. And then he died and I fell to my knees and said, I don't want to be a victim. I don't want to be pissed off. I want a way we can heal ourselves. So that is an example of ask and you receive. 30 seconds later, I got my first download, I call them. 
which was use the light within you to heal yourself, which I have kind of been expanding on ever since. So yes, I've been doing it all my life and no, I didn't practice it all my life. I, I found when I started channeling that this was very much the same thing I did in my acting, that I was really channeling my characters. I just, I know this is a big question. There's so many things we've been going through, especially the past few years with COVID and with isolation and just, you know, the shootings and Uvalde. And, and how do you get through that pain just day to day, um, just seeing it and, and, and just reading about it every day? What have you learned through your teachings? Uh, the channel always gives me objective information uh, about, I, like, for example, I know that the energetic basis of COVID is I have no control. So you see a world uh, in a lot of different ways trying to regain control over their lives. Unfortunately, a lot of times by trying to control others. If we all could understand that through our thoughts, our feelings, and our belief systems, we are the God of us that is creating us, we would not be so threatened by other people. So the first step to rectify all of this is to regain and take back your power of your own creation. We are taught through lifetimes and lifetimes now that in order to create something, we have to fix something else. But our brain thinks in pictures. When we look at our country and go, okay, we have to fix all the gun violence. We focus more on gun violence. When we are trying to fix everybody else's belief systems, we are feeding the very belief systems that we don't want. Spirituality, religion, and brain science are all saying the same thing. The good book says, think only on these things, peace, love, joy, right? Brain science says, whatever you think on, you create more of. That's why if you only think on the positive, the love, the peace, the joy that we all want in this world, the more you create it. But, and you cannot do that by judging. Again, the first commandment is judge not. So I don't know what the hell all of these churches are teaching now about, uh, I'm, somebody just sent me this thing, some church in the South where the preacher's going, if they don't agree with you, use violence. What the hell? It's not okay to use, you know, the first thing we're taught in Bible school is God is love. 
And now we're trying to use God as a reason to buy guns and kill people and divide ourselves against each other. That's man's ego taking God's word and, and twisting it into their own agenda. I want to ask you, just looking at IMDb before I got on here, I think you have 12 <laughs> things in pre-production. You seem to be yeah. working all the time. In terms of film, what are, are there any projects you can tell us about that are coming? Well, there's some really exciting things, really crazy things that, that I've been blessed with. Um, one horror suspense film that I think is going to be quite fascinating is called The Next. It's really a psychological suspense horror film. It's all over the place. Um, I did a beautiful romantic uh, comedy uh, called Birthday Boyfriend, probably going to be retitled, I don't know, did a um, lovely family film called The Legend of Cat Claws Mountain, and I just did a great limited TV series, which I think is going to blow the socks off of the world. I can't, I can't talk anymore about it. It's a true story. Can you say a director, showrunner? You can't tell us anything. No, I, I signed an NDA, so I, but it's, it's a true story and it's the most bizarre. I mean, I just kept looking at going, you're kidding. Oh my God, you're kidding. Oh my God, you're kidding. <laughs> so, and, um, and I, I got to bring my two worlds together in it because uh, I play a psyche. So it was very interesting for me to bring my movie world and my healing world together. Full circle somehow. Yeah. Miss um, Wallace, thank you so much. Again, I can't believe it's been 40 years for ET and- Me either, baby. <laughs> thank you, Christine. It was a great interview. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much to D. Wallace, E.T. turns 40, so if you haven't seen it or shown it to your family, this is the time. D. Wallace's new book is called Born, and we'll be on the lookout for all her new projects that she mentioned. I'm Christina Yerling-Biro, and this is Pop Culture Confidential, a part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. See you next time. Hey, hey there. there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are we are always unpacking that very question on sleepover cinema check out sleepover cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com see you soon